Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Our text is short, but it is a difficult text. It's only eight verses long, but they're eight verses which cause us to catch our breath and to hold our heart in our hands and look to the living God for comfort and for strength. Hear the word of the Lord, inspired and therefore inerrant. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we cry out to you as we come to your text. We know that your text is true and sure. It's inspired of the Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit works through it. He takes that text and drives it deep into our hearts and minds. Your word is living and true and is used to change us and to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. But our Father and our God, this is not a happy text. It's not a joyful text. It's a text which frightens us and leaves us feeling all the more our need of the Savior. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, as we tremble, that indeed You might be our comfort and our stay, that we might find in You all that we need for salvation. And standing on the rock of Christ Jesus our Lord, that he would see us safely through to that day when he comes again with all his holy angels and receives us into his banqueting feast with joy and with life eternal. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Just before instituting the Lord's Supper, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ dropped an atomic bomb on the disciples. He looked at them in the eye around that table and he said, One of you, one of you will betray me. They could not believe their ears. 
They were startled by the sound of it. Their, their immediate response was to hold their chests and say, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? That gospel event is the proper theological context as we come to Hebrews chapter 6. Now it's said that Helen's face launched, launched a thousand ships. But Hebrews chapter 6 launched a thousand books. The world could not contain the ink which has flowed from this passage. It would fill this room to overflowing. New Testament scholars, theologians, pastors, lay people have all repeated the words of the apostles. Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? As they have read these eight hard verses. You see, it's the same angst which fills us as we encounter Hebrews chapter 6. As confronted the disciples on that night when the shadow and pressure of the cross was fully against our Savior. And he rejoiced and found comfort in eating that meal together with them. But yet, there was still one dramatic event between him and Golgotha where he would sacrifice his life for those with whom he dined. The events in the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal by a kiss, that was a low point in his personal experience and a key point in the whole unfolding of redemptive history according to the plan and will of God. After years of wrestling with this passage, as maybe you yourself have done as well, I have I have finally come to the point, I think, of being able to summarize the pastoral import of this passage, which is simply this. God has given us these few verses and others sprinkled throughout the New Testament in order to scare us, in order to frighten us, in order to cause us to fear Why would the good and loving Heavenly Father do such? Why would His Son who sacrificed Himself cause us to tremble? Because there's nothing more dangerous than pride. There's nothing more dangerous in the life of a Christian than a self-assurance and a plowing ahead blindly and a leaving of God behind. The fears of Hebrews chapter 6 shake pride to the core, and in doing, they aid and abet our sanctification. They cause us to more deeply feel our need of the Savior. These words move us to flee back to Christ and to find in Him our only sure hope and ground. In other words, our text this morning teaches that here we learn to beware of falling away. Here we learn to beware of falling away. Now the text has around it a frame. There's a certain assumption that the author is using in order to make these difficult words plain to us. 
he first of all is assuming that the first opening of his epistle is true and correct, that he is addressing those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who have professed his name. He is speaking to the visible church, which has been richly blessed. And he's noting in our passage in particular in verse 4 that these people who gather in the assembly of the Lord to worship our heavenly Father through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that they have tasted the good things of God. Verse 4 says, They have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. And who were the they? But the people of God assembled. The people of God gathered together that they might worship and serve the living God. They gather together and worship together to sing His praise. They gather together to pray and to lift up holy petitions to the One who is able and mighty to answer. They enjoy the fellowship of the saints. They rub shoulders together. Their lives intersect. They find the blessing of God in the togetherness that they have in the bond of the body of Christ in which He has placed them. But it's not something back for the New Testament church alone. That's something that we enjoy here in Christ church, is it not? Take a moment and think of all the blessings that we enjoy as a congregation. One of the great blessings we're enjoying right now. We're gathered together in morning worship. We have come together to read the Word and and to hear the Word preached and to sing the Word and to pray the Word. We enjoy the Word seen as well through the waters of baptism and also through the Lord's table. We have God's Word flowing down the center of the aisle. What more could God give us in the way of blessing? You know, worship is a wonderful thing. Part of the blessing of corporate public worship is not just uh, getting together and sitting next to someone you love and, and looking across the room at someone else that you love dearly as well. But part of the comfort comes when we come out of the world and, and we gather in together with the saints. We, we come out of a week and we come out of, out of a world in which we have been bruised and beaten and bloodied. Our hearts have been strained, our our minds have been taxed, our souls have been revolted, and so we come together seeking the blessing and peace of God. And boy, does He get it. Does He give it? He gives it to us. Recently I had someone explain to me how difficult their week had been, and, and my response to them was, let me tell you, I can't wait to get to worship, and it sounds like you can't wait to get to worship either how much we need the encouragement and blessing that comes by gathering together, by knowing not just the presence of one another, but also enjoying the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is here with us. We are His and united to Him. And so as we gather in corporate worship, He is our brother, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us in the second chapter. We sing, He seems with us. We confess, He confesses with us. We find ourselves in the body of Christ, filled with the Spirit of Christ to the adoration of the Father. And so worship 
is a wonderful thing. But once the pastor finishes preaching, you know, there's another delight that awaits us. No, I'm, I'm not talking about the mixed trail uh, snack. I'm not talking about the particular flavor or kind of coffee uh, and cream that you put in your cup. Those are, are wonderful circumstances and encouragements to the really important thing, which is fellowship. The biblical word is koinonia. It's not just that we're marbles in a box and we bump up against each other. Rather, it's together believers sharing something of their lives and and sharing something of their walk in Christ, having come out of a time of worshiping and praising God together, they care for one another. God places us in families. He places us in those wonderful little units in which We can love and adore and care for one another in that great little realm. But there's also the wider realm of the church family. God calls us together as a congregation uh, to love the person across the aisle, to care for one another, to sacrifice time and energy and trouble and heart and mind and life. Fellowship. What? A tasty morsel. What a strengthening kind of balm for our souls. And then we can come back in evening worship and we can ask for our song and we can give our prayer request and and we can even uh, pepper the question uh, pastor with questions and, and we can seek to know God and to know His Word and to have it integrated into our lives one more time. Bounding the day, both at the beginning and also at the end, with the worship of God on the day that God, through His Son, has appointed. But there are other things in the week as well. Other parts to this enjoyment of the visible fellowship of the church, the visible church of God. A tasting of the good things of God, as the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it. Yesterday, there was some tasty fare early in the morning for the men. Some of the men who were able to come came and gathered and and they were encouraged by the word of God as it was preached and pressed upon their conscience in a context and and on a topic that was very suited and and focused for men young and old and middle-aged as well. There were were some good food, some wonderful roasted green chilies to go on top of the eggs. It It was a great time of fellowship. But there you see that mixture of the Word read and preached, of the Word applied to our hearts and lives through one another in fellowship. That is part of the great blessing and joy that we enjoy together here at Christ Church. There are men's Bible studies. There are women's Bible studies. There's more meeting of the women's Bible studies than there is the men's Bible studies, and that may tell us something. There are occasions of luncheons for the women's ministry. Uh, There's the new woman-to-woman ministry which is starting. Uh, There are all sorts of occasions on which believers, tall and short and young and old, can gather together and can minister to one another and encourage one another, and that's a real blessing and part of the visible church's life. There's pastoral care. 
If you have a question or a problem or a frustration or an issue, you can see your pastor and your pastor loves you and your pastor will care for you. And then there's work to do. There's kingdom work that we do together. It's not just that we're ministered to. We also minister to one another and we actively serve the Lord together in this place. There's mission work. There's a committee. Did you know they write our missionaries regularly? They remind us to pray for our missionaries regularly. They organize a missions conference. They hold up the responsibility of aiding and abetting the Great Commission that our Lord himself has given us as a congregation. We, too, can be involved in such important kingdom work. We heard in prayer our English as a Second Language ministry mentioned. This new exciting and and dynamic ministry, which will include many members of the congregation meeting new people in the community to help them learn a language and also help them cross the threshold of a church. Uh, They will hear and study some things about our world, but also about our God. And so it will be a help and an aid to their souls, and, and that word will go into families that otherwise we don't have access to directly. It's a wonderful opportunity that God has given. And in the service of God, we also have our uh, active, organized band of brothers. Uh, We call them deacons. Uh, They get together and and they take care of practical things in the church. They they care lovingly and in an active way for widows and orphans in our midst and around us. Uh, They indeed have a camaraderie on a level which is a wonderful blessing of God our children's ministry, our youth ministry, one can go on and on and talk about the blessings that we chew and taste together within the visible body of Christ. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews goes one step further, however. He says, not only have they tasted the good things of God, but that they have tasted or they have shared in the Holy Spirit in verse 4. Now, this means that everyone within the visible church of Christ, rightly admitted, has some modicum of evidence of regeneration, and at least not a scandalous contradiction to that evidence. You see, people come here, and and they join, and, and you know their lives are better for it. Things are headed in the right direction for them. Within Christ's church, there is a great and broad truth, if I can put it in familiar words. Everyone is good-looking, and all of the children are above average. At least in the visible church, that's the way it seems. In the next verse, verse 5, we read, And they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, there's a lot that the author has said in the earlier verse, but here we focus like a laser beam on the spiritual depth and reality of what's happening in the visible church. The visible church is not just uh, an organization where people kind of get together on a street corner or a particular address. It's not uh, directly and narrowly analyzable in the same way that a neighborhood association is or a political party or a a particular community or civic club. 
The church is something different. God is at work there. God is active. Yes, we are busy doing things, but God is busy as well. You see, we sit under preaching. Now, when your senior pastor's in the pulpit, it's good preaching. And when some of the rest of us are in the pulpit, well, we just try our best. It's preaching. It's the Word of God explained. It's the Word of God pressed upon us, driven deeply into our hearts and minds, not just that it might be, not just that it might be memorable, but that it might be effective, that it might make a difference. Oh, sitting under good preaching, is that not truly tasting the Word of God? And we enjoy the sacraments together. We see the waters of baptism. You know, there are congregations where the waters of baptism are never seen flowing except in the case of a covenant child recently born into the home. But, but we have had blessings of all sorts, have we not? Covenant children running out our ears. Children who have been adopted into our families as a great testimony to the goodness of God and an evidence of His love that is set upon us by His will. We live like Him, do we not? We enjoy baptism of those who come and make a profession of faith after years of perhaps waiting. Others who come because they have heard the gospel here for a first time and they love Jesus too because He has made a difference in their life. Oh, this, this font gets a lot of use compared to so many places these days. We, we have so much to be thankful for because God is the one working. And then there's the supper. You know, our table is not small. It, it has certain set dimensions. It can only be so big, but you know, uh, if you're not sitting right at it, we make sure that uh, the plate comes to you. We feed the people of God that gather in this place. We take to them the bread which symbolizes the body of Christ. We take to them the cup which symbolizes and points to the shed blood of Jesus on Calvary. We are reminded of His great sacrifice, of His crucifixion, of His voluntarily giving Himself to save sinners like us and we get to chew it and we get to taste it. We get to feel it. The Lord understands our physical nature and our weakness and that we need help in this way. God is active even as you chew. He is active in heart and life, making a difference. But all of this, all of this is to speak of the church visible. You see, there's not a one of us here that can stare into the eyes of a man or a woman or a child and see into their soul. I think I've confessed to you before that in my younger years when uh, I had a little bit longer, actually more, and a little bit longer hair, um, there, was a, there was a short period of time under a little bit of uh, friendly charismatic influence where I thought that, uh, you know, if you stared long enough at someone, you could see. You could just see if the Holy Spirit was in them. And then I realized that it was all eye strain and it had nothing to do with God. When you join Christ Church, it's a very simple process. You meet with the elders and you give your testimony. And uh, let me say, a as an elder now in, in the session, I'll be the first to say perhaps that, you know, the elders are not prophets. 
the elders don't uh, get a direct revelation from God. Ah, Susie, yes, we'll take her. It's not the way it happens. They cannot see your soul. They're just men. But that means they have ears and they can listen to your story. They can listen to your testimony of who God is and what he has done for you. You see, those are some of the great questions that uh, we ask. We're wanting to know, do you know the rudiments of the gospel? Do you know who Jesus is? And tell us what he's done for you. You know, there are really no trick exam questions when it comes to joining Christ Church. And then as they listen to your story, as, as they hear your testimony and your profession, it is their duty to draw a judgment. That is, they must draw, make a conclusion based upon what they know. Not based upon what they don't know, but based upon what they know. And so the two great um, issues about your testimony in their mind are, is your testimony of God's grace in your life confirmed by evidence of God's work in your life? Do you love to come to church? Do you love to read his word? Do you, do you find yourself benefiting from the fellowship of God's people? These are the places and occasions in which God promises to work powerfully in his children whom he loves. And then the other side of the coin, like to it is, is your testimony of grace contradicted in some way? Is there evidence of a, of a different scandalous sort which makes us wonder whether what you're saying actually has truth and content. I think I've related to the congregation before that many years ago I was asked to pastor in Dorna, Scotland. Now, I have one or two children in my family who say it was the greatest spiritual mistake I ever made, not going and staying in Scotland. But, uh, well, the Lord knows better. I I plan to retire um, in the new heavens and new earth on the Isle of Skye. I sent Arthur last summer to... uh, to scout out exactly the plot and location right next to the sea and how many sheep we would need. So uh, that's, uh, that's my prayer uh, in the, uh, when the Lord comes back. But, you know, I was asked to, uh, to consider a pul- pulpit in Dornock, Scotland, way in the north. You know, everyone's heard of St. Andrews. Well, there's another ancient and royal golf course, and it's up at Dornock, and it's right on the sea, and it's absolutely beautiful. And the only reason everyone doesn't go there for all of the great PGA tournaments or tournaments is that, well, you can't fly there very easily. Um, You have to take a train, and then you have to walk, and it's kind of hard. It's in the highlands. But they uh, they had quite an excitement in that town about the time that I was considering whether to take the pulpit or not, uh, in the evangelical church in that place. You see, in the, in the cathedral of the Church of Scotland, pastored by uh, someone who's not so evangelical, they, they had the announcement of a great uh, baptism that they were going to do. And in order to do that baptism, of course, the, uh, uh, the parent of the child had to res- uh, profess faith and answer the five questions of church membership that are the same there as they are here, and they always have been, and I suspect knowing Presbyterians, they always will be the same. And so the officers of that particular congregation sat and listened to the five questions, and they heard a response of yes come from the lips to the question, are you, are you a, a sinner? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God? 
justly deserving his displeasure without hope in his sovereign mercy? And the response from Madonna was, I do. And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? I do, she said. And do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? I do. And instead of doing their duty, which was to lean over and say, Honey, we got to talk. Instead, they uh, sold tickets to all the village and townspeople and they could come have a seat and watch the great event. You see, some professions of faith are contradicted by the evidence staring you in the face, while others are adorned are adorned with the jewels of Holy Spirit work and fruit and change in the life of the professing believer. So the two great questions before the session are, do you have a Christian testimony? And is that testimony confirmed or contradicted by the facts? If you have a Christian testimony which has confirmed the elders, and indeed is it not true, the entire congregation joyfully welcomes you into the fellowship of this congregation. You see, only the Lord knows whether someone's born again. But the visible church rightly rejoices where Christ is clearly professed. Now let me just say it as an aside, not by way of criticism, but just by way of information. You know, this is where Presbyterians historically tend to differ from some of our Congregational and Baptist brethren, even those who claim to be Reformed. The reality of the case is is that uh, you can't build a congregation out of people that you are 100% sure are all regenerate. Because we're not God, and we're not in such a position so to judge. We're just men and, so, men and women, and so what we do is we listen, and we ask a couple of questions, and if there is a Christian testimony, and if there is some confirmation of the work of the Holy Spirit, then we welcome and rejoice, rather than seeking to screen and exclude that we might have the most perfect club in town. Oh, as members of the visible church, we enjoy great blessings, do we not? From the triune God, he calls us, he gathers us in this place, and he engages us in his worship and in his service. We read and hear the word preached, and we sing and pray and care for one another. We face births and marriages together, do we not? We face illness and even death together. And that's part of the sweetness of the fellowship of the church visible. I think the greatest privilege that we have in our life together as a congregation is when we sin against one another. When we have the privilege of, by the grace of God, exercising that which only God can do in the heart and life of someone where they actually forgive one another. What a testimony to the grace of God, the greatest of all joys. Our hearts, our friendships, our marriages, our children, our lives are the better for being in this place. But our text this morning sadly reminds us 
that some in the visible church fall away. They fall away from the covenant community and they have fallen away. It's not just their testimony. It's also their presence. It's their involvement. They, they leave us. They, they go a-wandering. They, they go after. They go back to the world. Rather than staying with the people of God, they fall away from the family of God. And they fall away from their vows. I read those first three. Do you acknowledge yourself a sinner? Is your only hope in the mercy of a saving, sovereign God? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you receive and rest upon Him as He's offered in the Gospel? These are the crucial questions of life. Even the question, will you resolve in promise in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit to seek to live a Christian life? That too is a part of essential Christian testimony. Lord, I will strive to love You and serve You. I, I confess that I am a sinner and I need You and Your Son is my only hope. There is the essence of the gospel. But then there are two other questions. Do you support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability? Your time, your talent, your treasure, those things that are so precious to you and so essential for your life to move forward, will you give them? Will you give them a way back to God as a testimony to the fact that He is your all in all? Will you submit yourself? The most offensive of all the questions. Will you submit yourself? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and study, promise to study its purity and peace? Well, insofar as it suits me, I remember one person responded as the elders gasped. You see, to walk away from the people of God in this place or that is to walk away from the family of God and the body of Christ. Oh, these, these vows, the first three must be kept by every believer, period. And the last three have to be kept by us in one congregation or another. But at the end of the day, to walk away from the Lord and from the Christian faith is to walk away from those vows and to not be who we were before. Because, you see, we fall away also from our profession. Now, some people want to scrut, as Calvin calls it, scrut into the inscrutable decree. Uh, Calvin tells us not to do this, and the reformer is very wise. The question of, are they elect? This is not our business. You leave that to God. He will make it plain in his own time and in his own way. But their prior Christian testimony, which sounded so good, technically becomes unsafe if they walk away from the family of God. The evidence of confirmation begins to sour. The evidence tilts in the other direction and contradictory evidence begins to mount. And so sadly, oftentimes, the testimony itself disappears before our very eyes, even as they do. How tragic. For you see, if they had only stayed in their seat, how heartbreaking. If they had only remained under the preaching of God's Word, if they had only reached out for pastoral care and, and for comfort, they might not be in such distress. Even if they're lost, what better place is there to be found 
than sitting among the people of God and hearing and being ministered to by the good things of God. They can even taste the Word of God. But if they choose to taste it and then spit it out, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews has frightening words for us. He says elsewhere, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He tells us here that such apostates have no hope. You see, verse 6 says their hope, their only hope was in Christ. They've fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. It's impossible. Now the interesting irony here is that our only hope is in Christ as well. Everybody's only hope is in Christ, is in Jesus. And we need to remember this as we go through the daily steps of the Christian life. You know, many times I've had someone come to me and confess that they were caught in a besetting sin and and they had begun to doubt God or the power of God or, or whether they really were a Christian because they found themselves entangled in a besetting sin. And it's always good news to tell them, to remind them, to point them to the fact that if there's struggle with sin, then that's indicative of life, the work of the Holy Spirit, of conviction that comes from on high as the Holy Spirit teaches us that how we're living is not right and that we're in need of help and further blessing from the Savior. Such struggle is itself an evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. As hard and as painful as the struggle might be, and as easy as it might be to to reach for that eject lever at the end of the day, don't pull it. Don't pull it. Because the pain that you are feeling is an evidence of the goodness and work of God. But when they do leave the church, these apostates, they turn from blessing to shame. Verses 6 and 7 tell us there's a great illustration that comes. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. You see, the apostate cuts herself off from the only medicine that will cure her ill. The folly of beauty or of fame or of fortune won't do it. The shame of the right pills or the internet or the bottle, they won't work. Nothing will save her. Nothing will save you or me except our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Himself. Apostasy is when you are dying with thirst, when you need a drop to quench your tongue and you go running into the desert running after a mirage instead of sitting, turning around and sitting down and enjoying the full blessings of a banquet feast that your Lord has given in Christ. And he warns us here, from such there is no escape. There's no hope or strength in our flesh. Our only hope is in turning to the unlimited and all-powerful resources of the Savior. And so here the author of the epistle to the Hebrews warns us that apostasy brings the judgment of God. In the end, it is burned. In the end, it is cursed. 
judgment and death eternal are held up for us to tremble in the face of. And so what are we to do? What are we to do together as the people of God, as we face this text, as we feel and hear the thunder and lightning roll down from Mount Sinai and we find ourselves undone? We should hear and tremble. It's not wrong to be afraid of this text. It's the right reaction. It's a, it's a fear that you need to embrace. It's a, it's a foreboding that you need to come to grips with. Heed the warning which God is giving here. And fly to the Savior. The whole purpose is for you to fly to Jesus. Run to Him. Turn to Him. Do not stop turning to Him because you need Him as your only hope and strength so that you too will not be undone. He is your comfort. He is your rescue. And He will not Cast you out. After he dropped his bombshell on that famous night, our Lord did not leave his disciples in the throes of despair. There, Lord, is it me? Was quickly answered by his take, eat. This is my body. And he follows it up with some of the most comforting and encouraging words for those in doubt. Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His words are not idle. Yes, they shake you. But he does that for your own good and growth. His words are not idle, for they cost him everything. They cost him his life. This is my body broken. This is my blood. And so, yes, beware. Beware of falling away. And instead, you flee to the Savior. He is your only hope and comfort now and forevermore. He will welcome you. He will comfort you. He will strengthen you and give you all that you need. Everything for Christian living. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do ask that your Son would comfort us in the face of this difficult passage. We pray that we might know the encouraging work of the Holy Spirit, that our hearts might be lifted up off the floor and they they might be exalted on high even as we come to sing and to confess your name, even that Jesus lives and so shall I. This we ask in his name alone. Amen.